Well, we are continuing this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're in the Passion Week, the, the night before Jesus is to be crucified. So we're in the, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, and you can find that printed for you in your bulletin. Uh, during my junior year of college, uh, I received the phone call very early one morning, and, and those of you who are college students know that you don't normally receive phone calls very early in the morning when you're in college. And when I received this call, my dad was on the other end of the line, and he was telling me that my mom, who had been in Atlanta uh, at Emory Hospital for exploratory surgery to remove a tumor from her pituitary gland, had actually suffered a stroke uh, during the midst of that exploratory surgery. And he was calling to tell me this. And, and I don't know what your families are like. Uh, my wife's family, I think they enjoy crying. I mean, they, they're very sentimental. They'll cry at the drop of a hat. The Kendricks are not like that. You have to be kind of dead before we'll start crying. Um, and, and, and are close to dead. And my dad that morning on the phone was, was breaking down as he was telling me that news. And so I knew this was, this, was a, this was a big deal. This was something very serious. And you guys, no matter what your families are like, you know what it's like to have someone who's always been the strong person in your life for them to, to break down and to be overcome with grief. Uh, last week, we looked at, or the night before Jesus is going to die, and last week we looked at the last meal, the last supper that he shared with his disciples, uh, noting that he was actually eager to share this meal with them, that he wanted to, to put the pieces of the Old Testament together for them so that they could see what was about to happen. Uh, Jesus, he, he knew that his death was coming. It's what he had come to do. And it seems as you're reading the Gospel of Mark that he is marching steadily, unwaveringly to the cross. He is determined that that is where he is going because that is what he has come to do. And you all, almost at this point in the story, you could, you could almost feel like Clint Eastwood playing Jesus. I am going to that cross. I am going to die. And nothing is going to distract me in any way. I am focused on what I've come to do. And, and nothing's going to deter me from what I'm going to do. He doesn't seem nervous. He doesn't seem afraid. But all that changes in the text we're going to read this morning. The text we're about to read, we find Jesus distressed. We find Jesus troubled. We find Jesus sorrowful, he says, even to the point of death. Even asking his father, is there another way? Is there another way? And so what I want us to think about this morning is what in the world is going on with Jesus in this text? And then what does that have to do with you and me? So let's look at this together. Mark chapter 14. And I'm going to start reading in verse 26. And when they had hung, sung a hymn, this is, this is immediately following the Last Supper, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let me pray for us. Father, we are on uh, very holy ground this morning. I pray that you would help me as I uh, proclaim your word to, to, to teach it accurately and faithfully. Uh, I pray that we will get a glimpse of exactly what your son went through uh, to save us, to rescue us. Uh, I pray that it would not be simply an intellectual exercise, but that hearing this would actually affect our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would accompany uh, the preaching of uh, this is your word now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the first question I want to ask this morning is, is what's going on with Jesus in this scene here before us? Uh, they, he and his disciples have left the Passover meal. They've headed out to the Mount of Olives and now to a place called Gethsemane. And we read in verse 33 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It's as if this emotional darkness has suddenly descended upon Jesus. Uh, In fact, the Greek word translated distressed here carries the idea of alarmed and thunderstruck. Jesus is, is reeling at the moment. One writer put it this way. He says, as Jesus is on his way to pray, a darkness and horror come down on him beyond anything he could have anticipated. And the pain of it makes him feel he is disintegrating on the spot. Jesus, feeling as if he is disintegrating on the spot. He says, I am sorrowful even to the point of death. Not only do we see that Jesus is distressed here, we read also that he is tempted. Tempted to give up on the mission that he has come to accomplish. Verse 36, he prays, Abba, 
which is akin to our daddy. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Isn't isn't there another way to do this? Why is this happening? Why is Jesus suddenly horrified? Why is he wrestling with what he has known was going to be his ultimate fate for his entire life? Why is he alarmed? Uh, Other Christians in the years that followed this would, would face their death with much more poise than Jesus seems to have at the moment. Uh, the, the famous story of uh, Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, uh, they were burned at the stake actually for their faith in Christ in England in 1555. And they were tied side by side to a stake. And as the fire was lit under their feet, Latimer said to his friend, Be of good cheer, Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light up such a candle in England as I trust will never be put out. Heroic. But that's not the picture we have of Jesus here in Mark chapter 14. Why? What's what's entered into Jesus' mind? Verse 35 tells us uh, that Jesus was praying that the hour, the hour of his death might pass from him. Verse 36 Jesus prays, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. Uh, Jesus is becoming existentially aware of something that he knew was going to happen his entire life. Uh, In Mark 10, Jesus tells us that he's come to give his life as a ransom for many. Now he's starting to experience what it will feel like to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, It's as if he's in the garden making the first payment of that ransom. He has to become the ransom for many, and he's beginning to sense what that will involve. He's about to be wounded for our transgressions. He's about to be crushed for our iniquities, as Isaiah 53 says. He's about to stand before before a holy God and bear the sins of Peter and James and John and Justin and Coleman, of of all of his people. He's about to bear the weight of the things that I have done and suffer the wrath of God for my sins. Our murder, our lust, our gossip, our unbelief. Jesus is about to identify with us in all of that, in our idolatry, in our running away from God. And he's about to be plunged under the flood of God's wrath. That's what the image of the cup is about. Uh, The cup in the Old Testament was a metaphor for the wrath of God. Ezekiel 23, you will drink a cup large and deep full of ruination and desolation. Isaiah 54, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. Jesus in the garden, as it were, is is holding the cup in his hands and he's looking at what he's about to drink. Uh, Imagine if you were one of the the allied troops and you knew that the the next day you were going to be storming the beaches on Uh, D-Day. I'm sure we would all be apprehensive if we knew what was coming the next day. But what if someone showed you a clip of Saving Private Ryan the day before you stormed the beaches and said, this, we're bringing this from the future, and this is, this is 
the movie they're going to make about your life and what's going to happen to you tomorrow. And if you've seen that clip, you know that, that taking those beaches was, was, a, was a hell on earth for those who did that. But can you imagine sensing that? Not just being told about it, but, but getting a real sense of this is what's going to happen to me and my friends tomorrow. You would have had to drag me onto the boat and then push me out of the boat when we got there. I would have been so terrified by that thought. But Jesus is facing and, and sensing the reality of something much worse than that. He's not going to be the victim of enemy gunfire, as it were. He's facing the prospect of his father turning his face away and facing the prospect of experiencing the wrath of God and hell itself on the cross. Try to imagine somebody you've loved for years, somebody that's loved you for years, and then in a moment they, they turn their face away. And extend, ex, ex, it, instead of extending love to you, they extend simply wrath. And that's all you experience of this person that you have loved for your entire life. It, 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 it's hard to find an adequate illustration, isn't it, of what Jesus was about to experience. The Son of God is about to lose the experience of the love of his Father. And in place of that, he's about to experience pure justice and wrath. And you can see why he is distressed. You can see why he is falling apart, as it were. Uh, and yet, even under the weight of this that is, that is bearing down on him, Jesus remains resolute. He doesn't give up. He doesn't turn away. Uh, verse 36, again, he prays, remove this cup from me. I'd rather not drink this. But then he says, yet not what I will but what you will. Why does he say that? Why does he remain resolute? Because he trusted his father. He trusted his father. He knew what the scriptures taught. He knew that his father loved him. He had nurtured his relationship with his father all of his earthly life. And as he faced the prospect of the cross that night, he threw himself on the ground, in agony, praying that there might be another way, but knowing that to accomplish the salvation of his people, he had to remain obedient to the will of his Father to the end, even to the point of death on a cross. Uh, in the Odyssey by Homer, you know the, the, the story, there are sirens whose beautiful song lures sailors to their deaths. And so Odysseus is preparing to sail through that area and he has his <coughs> sailors put beeswax in their ears so they cannot hear the siren song. And he has himself lashed to the mast so that he cannot uh, run to the sirens when they begin to sing and be lured to his death. Jesus lashed himself to the reality of his father's love. He plugged his ears with the words of scripture that he knew so well, so that he would not be lured away to an easier path, a path where he wouldn't experience the wrath of God that he had done nothing to deserve. Instead, he got up from the ground, he got up from his agony, and he willingly allowed himself to be lashed to something, to be lashed to a cross where he did experience 
the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what's going on with Jesus. What's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with me? Let me say a couple things here. Number one, you and I are going to face trials and temptations in this life as well. Uh, Sometimes those things come separately. Sometimes they're very much linked because trying times can be very much times of temptation. I think there's a couple of things we can learn from Jesus in this moment of Gethsemane that we can apply to our own moments of trial and temptation. Number one, it's okay to unravel in the midst of your Gethsemane. It's okay for you to unravel in the midst of your Gethsemane. It's, it's not a sin. It's okay that you're not okay. It's okay to break down. It's okay to weep. It's okay to ask God for a different path. <clears throat> a friend of mine, Ricky Jones, is a pastor in Oklahoma, uh, and he tells a story that when he, that he was a freshman at Vanderbilt, uh, and that that was the first time in his life he'd ever yelled at God. Uh, Ricky drew up in Dresden, Tennessee. His mom was the head of a school cafeteria. His dad was a truck driver. And he wound up uh, at Vanderbilt having had his going away party in a cow pasture in Dresden, Tennessee. And he showed up on campus wearing an airbrushed shirt that said, Rick the lifeguard. He, he was having a hard time fitting in at Vanderbilt. Um, but he said that wasn't really the main reason that he was mad at God. The main reason he was mad at God was that his father had left their home at an early age and he could remember going to prayer meetings at church and standing up in front of the, the whole congregation that was gathered when he was like in fourth or fifth grade and praying that God would bring his dad home. And God never brought his dad home. And then he went on to, to, to Vanderbilt. He said he was a good kid. He didn't drink or sleep around. He went to, to all the Bible studies that he could, he could find time to go to. And then he received a word that his brother's wife was asking for a divorce. And he began to pray and he began to fast that God would change their minds and that they wouldn't split up. And he was just, he was just fed up with God. Uh, allowing his family to continue to fall apart. And so he says he went out in the middle of campus and yelled at God. And he said, what good are you if you can't save a marriage? What good are you? And then he yelled, I don't believe in you anymore. And he said that in that moment he felt God chuckle and say, well then who are you talking to? Who, Who are you talking to? And Ricky said, well, clearly I do believe in you because I'm talking to you. And, and I, I say all that to say, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to come unraveled. But, but do what, what Ricky did, do what Jesus did, do what the psalmist do. Take that unraveling to God. Unravel before the face of God as it were. Uh, secondly, Jesus was unraveling as it were. Jesus was tempted. And I think it's important for us to remember, Jesus was tempted and yet Jesus never sinned. Uh, Temptation is not the same thing as sin. And some of us are are borne down by guilt because we feel temptations about certain things. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. What's the difference? 
Uh, the best way I have to think about it is a quote from Martin Luther who said, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from making a nest in your hair. All right, Tem- temptations will come, but, but what, do you, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Do you battle against that? But, but temptation is not sin. So it's okay that you're not okay. It's okay to come unraveled sometime. Temptation isn't the same thing as sin. But the goal in this is the same as it were with Jesus, is to come through that trial, to come through that temptation, and, and to bend ourselves to the Father's will. So how do we do that? How in the midst of trial and temptation do we say, not my will, but yours be done. We've got to trust our Father is, is wise and loving in all His ways. And you say, okay, great, that sounds like preacher talk. Well, what do you mean? Well, what does, what does Jesus tell His disciples to do? When He knows they are about to be tried, when He knows they are about to be tempted, He tells them to watch and to pray. To watch and to pray. Now, what does that, what does that mean? What does it mean for us to watch and to pray? What does it mean for us to watch uh, I think it, from reading the text, it means we don't fall asleep uh, as the disciples did that night. It, remains, it means we remain spiritually awake. And I think that means staying attuned to what God is doing in the world and being aware of what Satan is trying to accomplish in the world as well. To be aware that Satan will throw things in our paths. If you were the lookout on a boat that was going through a field of icebergs, you would want to be attuned to the training that you had received and you would want to be on the lookout for what was coming in front of you. Uh, If you're one of the teams in the NCAA tournament, I mean, how silly would it be if you completely blew off the coach's instruction and didn't do any research into what the other team was about? You would heed your your coach. You You would research the other team. You would know what your enemy was trying to do. Um... That doesn't sound that complicated. You know, if I'm, I'm to listen to God, I'm to be aware of what Satan is about in the world. But it's easy to get complacent, isn't it? Especially when, when life is going good, when we're well fed, when our, when our jobs are we're okay. It's easy to come complacent. It's easy when things are going smoothly to just kind of lose touch with God. I don't, I, don't, I don't need to read the Bible this morning. I need to catch up on Sports Center, And we slowly drift away you know most affairs don't happen out of the blue they they happen as a because a husband and wife are slowly slowly drifting away and that's what happens with us and god when we don't watch and when we don't pray it's like we we wander off from the herd like a calf and become easy prey for the evil one Uh, i remember a, a friend of mine he was struggling with a particular sin and he said you know the longer I've struggled with this the more I realize that the demonic element involved in this that this is not just me and my issues although that's part of it but but Satan is actively seeking to draw me away from God he's actively putting things in my path in an attempt to destroy me and I think it's real easy for us to forget that the enemy is like a roaring lion prowling about looking for someone to destroy or to, to paraphrase uh, C.S. Lewis, our, our, our problem is that not that we think of uh, devils too much, it's that we don't think of them at all. 
We disbelieve in their existence. I don't know how many times I've read that last chapter of Ephesians about spiritual warfare and been like, oh yeah, this is a battle we're in and, and, and Satan is actively trying to trip me up and I've got to remember this. And then you go on, you read it and like, okay, I'm on that. And then you go on about your day and just get caught back up in our materialistic, anti-supernatural world and don't give a second thought to it. And so we don't watch and we don't pray. And that's the second thing Jesus instructs us to here. Uh, verse 29, Peter says to Jesus, even if they all fall away, I won't fall away. If I have to deny with, if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And everybody else there says the same thing. And then verse 50, after Judas betrays Jesus, we read that they all left him and fled. What happened in that in-between time? They were asleep. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. They had a naive confidence in their own ability to stand up uh, in the midst of a trial. Arnold Palmer tells a story. It was at the, I think it was the 1961 Masters. He had a one-stroke lead. He was on the 18th hole. He hit a shot a long ways down the middle of the fairway. Everything was set up for him to win. He saw an old friend in the gallery who waved him over and Arnold Palmer went over and shook hands with him. And when he shook hands with him, the guy said, congratulations. And Arnold Palmer walked back out and he hit the next shot into a sand trap and the next one over the back of the green. And then he missed a putt and he lost the Masters. It was all right there. He was, he was confident, overconfident. I, I can do this. I've got that. And it's so easy for us to be spiritually overconfident I've got this I, I, can, I can do this and so we have to pray we have to remember our helplessness we have to remember our tendency to, to stray uh, and yes pray in the midst of temptation but we have to be praying beforehand maintaining that relationship with our father or we'll be unprepared when temptation strikes so watch and pray but then the third thing if, if you and I would, would trust God and remain faithful through the midst of temptations, we must watch, we must pray, and then we must remember why Jesus did what he did. Uh, Romans 5, 8, but God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, the story is told that many years ago in China, there was a town that suffered several droughts a year. And when these droughts hit, they would have to ration the water. And you were limited on how much water you could take from the well. And the judge was in his office or whatever one day. And the bailiff comes to him and he says, we've got somebody we've caught stealing water. And he was, he was really sad about telling the judge. And the judge said, what are, what are you so upset about? And the bailiff said, Come on, you'll see. And so the judge came with him, and it turned out that it was the judge's sick elderly mother who had been stealing the water. The sentence for stealing the water was 40 lashes. And the judge loved his mother, um, but he also knew that if he just let her go, that that would just unleash uh, an uproar in town, and they would just be turned into a lawless place. If you're not going to distribute justice equally here and so the judge sentenced his mother to 40 lashes and they tied her 
to the post. And the judge took off his shirt and he walked over and he draped himself over his mother. And he said, I want every blow to land on me. I want every blow to land on me. Why did Jesus drink the cup? He drank it because he loves you. And he wants every blow to land on him. Uh, This is where the, the cross is where we see the justice of God, that sin is punished, and yet also the love of God, and that Jesus takes the blows for me. If I'm going to remain resolute during times of trial and temptation, yes, I have to watch. Yes, I have to pray. But I also have to remember that Jesus loves me. I have to remember that if the Father gave up his Son for me, as Paul says in Romans, he will surely give me all things. He will surely give me everything that I need. And surely can I, I trust him. Remember the love of God. And then I also have to remember That when I fail, because I will fail, and you will fail, I have to remember that Jesus still loves me. And I sin, and I repent, and I resolve to walk with Christ and do better. But my hope in that moment isn't in my doing better. And your hope in that moment isn't in your doing better, that in doing better you can somehow atone for your sin. Your hope in that moment is that Jesus drank the cup. Jesus drank the cup that you'll never have to watch pray and remember the love of God in Christ let me pray for us Father help us to uh, to remember that, that Christ drank the cup that Christ drank the cup that you love us that you're just But your justice has been satisfied at the cross. Uh, Use that to relieve us us of our fears. And use use that to help us to trust you uh, when we are in the dark and have a hard time seeing the light. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.